0: If you had looked out at the universe about 30 years ago, we would have speculated that there are alien worlds out there far beyond our solar system, but we didn't yet know for sure what was out there around other stars. Fast forward to 2020, and not only have we begun detecting exoplanets around solar systems other than our own, but we have multiple satellites like Kepler and NASA's tests that have measured thousands of exoplanets. Perhaps surprisingly, the most common place to find Earth-sized planets around stars with similar temperatures to what Earth has is isn't around sun-like stars, but is rather around these small red dwarf stars, the M dwarfs. These might actually be the most probable candidates for life beyond Earth, although there's some controversy over it. Regardless, we're detecting an explosion of potentially habitable worlds that, regardless of whether they have life or not, are absolutely fascinating in their own regard. What have we learned about these exoplanetary systems and where are we headed in the future? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. To go from zero known exoplanets to literally thousands with the potential to have thousands more in the extremely near future is a remarkable feat, not only of engineering, but of science progressing so quickly in our own lifetimes. Right now, we know that these planets exist, we know some of their properties, but in the next few years, we're going to be learning even more about them, like what their atmospheres are like and whether they have biosignatures, or I should say bio hints that could possibly indicate life on them. And here to help us explore this, I'm so excited to welcome PhD candidate and exoplanet expert Emily Gilbert to the podcast. Emily, it's my pleasure to have you here and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Ethan. I'm so excited to be here.
0: This is fascinating. So, um most people might not know, but uh Emily was a uh was a presenter at this year's in January 2020 uh American Astronomical Society's annual meeting and what she was telling us about was absolutely fascinating it's one specific m dwarf system called the toi or toy 700 system toy 700 is a star um, and it has multiple exoplanets around it including one that might be fascinating for its possibility for potentially having habitable like conditions emily would you like to tell us a little bit about this star and the star system that it has around it
1: sure So TY700 is an M-dwarf star. Um, It's about 100 light years away from us. And as an M-dwarf star, it's smaller and cooler than the sun. So it's about 40% the sun's mass and radius. Uh, And this system has three known exoplanets that we've found so far. There's one planet that's fairly close in. It's on around a 10-day orbit around the host star. And it's basically the same radius as Earth. Then a little bit further out on a 16-day orbit, there's a little bit of a bigger planet, uh, about two and a half times Earth radius, and uh, it orbits every 16 days. And then further out, we have the really exciting planet, TOI-700d. It's on a 37-day orbit, and that puts it within the star's habitable zone. So that's the area where it's not too hot, not too cold. If the planet has an atmosphere, there's the potential that it could have liquid water on the surface.
0: Now that's that's really fascinating because when we think about our own solar system right the the innermost planet is mercury and that's on an 88 day orbit so when you're talking about this planetary system about TOI 700 and the three planets we know around it right and these these might not even be the only planets around it but these are definitely three planets that we have around it um why Are their orbital periods so much shorter compared to the planets in our solar system, and yet there's a planet with a 37-day orbit that might have Earth-like properties?
1: So we think for M-dwarfs, the whole system is kind of a shrunken down version of our solar system, potentially. So everything forms a little closer in, a little smaller, a little more compact. So because the star is cooler than the Sun, In order for a planet to have the same temperature as earth it has to be closer in in order to get more starlight to heat up to the same temperature
0: so it's not really about you know the distance to the sun it's about how much um i'll call it luminosity you're receiving where you are located in the solar system so a star like toi 700 which is cooler redder and much much fainter than our sun you'd actually want to be close into it wouldn't you exactly all right so um I'm thinking about how a system like this is going to be different because with a smaller star like this, uh, your planets are going to be much closer, and we're used to thinking in terms of Newton's law in astrophysics to say like, okay, uh, the gravitational force goes as one over r squared, so if I'm twice as close, to something, or I guess I'm half as far away as something, the gravitational force is going to be four times bigger. Um, But there are also effects like tidal forces, which don't scale as 1 over r squared, but 1 over r cubed. So I can imagine that if I have an Earth-sized planet or an Earth-temperature planet that takes only 10% as long to orbit its star, its tidal forces are going to be much, much bigger Wouldn't that mean it gets uh, tidally locked to the star? Wouldn't that make it like, I don't know what the proper term is, but I I guess I think of them as eyeball planets, where you have (laughs) a, a hot side on the side that faces the sun, a cold side on the side that faces away from its sun, and then this sort of temperate ring around the sunset sunrise line?
1: Yes, so this is actually one of the things that we looked into really closely for our papers. Um, So we led a series of three papers on this system, uh, one looking at the system as a whole, all three planets, one confirming the transit of TOI 700D with Spitzer, and one looking at the atmospheric states of TOI 700D in order to assess its habitability and see what we could potentially learn about this planet with future missions.
0: Let's go back to the tidal locking first, and why don't you tell us a little bit more about that phenomenon?
1: So we think that planets tidally lock to their stars over time, particularly uh, planets around M-dwarfs like this that are very close in. So one thing that you need to think about is how old is the system, so has it had time to tidally lock? But that's kind of tricky for M-dwarfs because They live for a super, super long time, and they tend to stay the same, so it's really hard to estimate the age of the system. But we looked at the mass of the star, the mass of the planet, we made some assumptions about what the planet could be made of, and we thought that given our estimated age of the star, which is very, very loose and hand-wavy being over one billion years, that this system would have had time to tidally lock the planet to the star
0: interesting. So it's not like it's not like something where you look at the Earth-Sun system and you're like oh, this isn't even close we absolutely haven't had time to tidally lock, quite obviously because we rotate on our axis and it's also definitely not like the Earth-Moon system where you, you do a simulation of, okay, if I form a rapidly spinning moon uh, near the Earth at approximately this distance, what is the time scale to tidal lock and it's something like 100,000 years so obviously after billions of years, it's definitely going to be locked. What you're saying is this, uh, this system, uh, the planet TOI-700D, which is the most interesting one, it's kind of on the border. It's kind of like you're estimating like, yeah, it probably takes like hundreds of millions of years to do it, but this system is probably billions of years old. So it's probably locked.
1: It's really hard to get all of the information you need to definitively say if the planet is tidally locked, but based on reasonable assumptions, you can put together the pieces and make an estimate.
0: That's that's pretty fascinating. That's pretty fascinating. So you're saying, um, you know, like everything, it's important to be aware of our assumptions, but you're saying that. If you're honest and upfront about what your assumptions are and the community can all agree that these are reasonable assumptions, then we have expectations that, yes, it will be tidally locked. But if something comes along to challenge these assumptions, then you know, okay, then you need to challenge that conclusion as well, and it might not be tidally locked. Or the locking it experiences might not be in this one-to-one locking like we see in the moon, but might be locked in some weird resonance like Mercury around the Sun
1: right exactly and then we took this assumption one step further and we said assuming that the t- the planet is tidally locked what does that mean for a potential atmosphere on this planet so we do not know yet if the planet toi 700 d has an atmosphere but we wanted to see what would happen if it did so we assumed that it did have an atmosphere and that it was tidally locked And in this paper, uh, led by Gabby Suisa, who is a first year grad student at the University of Washington, and I'm super proud of her and all of her work on this project. Uh, She led an analysis of different atmospheric states on this planet. So if it looked like an early Mars or it had an atmosphere that was similar to Earth, what would happen on a planet that was tidally locked over time, would it be able to maintain an atmosphere? Um, And what's really exciting is that she found that the planet was actually really stable. So it was able to maintain an atmosphere in all cases, which is really exciting when it comes to planet habitability. Because um, one of the big concerns when it comes to tidally locked planets, like you kind of alluded to before, is that one side is always facing the sun, so it's very, very warm. And the other side, always in darkness, could be really cold. And so, as scientists, we're concerned about what could happen to an atmosphere particularly on the cold side of the planet. So maybe the atmosphere would start condensing out, kind of like we see on the Martian polar ice caps. And so you could freeze out an atmosphere and the planet would lose the atmosphere and then no longer be habitable. So in order to maintain habitability, a tidally locked planet has to have some way of distributing heat from the day side of the planet to the night side of the planet in order to maintain its atmosphere over time.
0: You know that's that's pretty fascinating because when we look at the four terrestrial planets here in our own solar system their atmospheres are so thoroughly different from each other Mercury has just about no atmosphere at all it looks like the sun has blown it entirely away Venus which is exterior to Mercury but interior to Earth is actually the hottest planet in the solar system because of its thick atmosphere that's 90 times the pressure at the surface of Earth's atmosphere that Venus even on its night side even at its coldest is hotter than Mercury gets at its hottest in full sun um, and Earth is nice and temperate we like the way that is but Mars has its own thin atmosphere now I remember in your in this paper you refer to um, you sort of said that if uh, toI 700d if this world were a wet, ocean-covered world with a rich CO2 atmosphere like maybe early Mars had, um, then its winds would circle the entire planet and cause temperatures to be rather on the hot side but kind of uniform around the whole planet. Um... But then you had a different situation where what if this planet were a cloudless planet with dry land with an atmosphere similar to modern Earth? Uh, And then you get this eyeball configuration where the winds pretty much flow from the hot day side to the cold night side. Um, And it would have sort of Earth-like conditions around that ring area. So it seems like Um, there are lots of interesting possibilities for what this world's atmosphere could be like. And what we'd really want to do is actually make these measurements to see what sort of signatures are there. Is there carbon dioxide? Is there methane? What other gases are there? And then we can learn things like, what's the temperature gradient? Are there winds? Do we see things changing over time on this world? Um, These are questions that, I wouldn't have thought to ask a year ago. And now that I'm asking them, I want to know the answers.
1: Me too. I would really like to know the answers (laughs) to these questions. Um, Unfortunately, one of the big takeaways from the paper that Gabby led was that the signal of an atmosphere on TOI 700D is too small for us to detect with James Webb moving forward. So we really need bigger and better, more extravagant telescopes in order to really understand more about this planet and what the atmosphere is made of.
0: You know, and, and that's, that's I think, a very important point. Uh, James Webb Space Telescope, as I understand it, is really going to be good at measuring exoatmospheres on planets that might be a little bit larger than Earth. So they might do, it might do a great job of measuring the atmosphere of like TOI 700C which, you know, you said is is about two and a half times the size of Earth, and it does transit in front of the TOI-700 star. Um, but it won't be good for getting planets as small as Earth-sized planets around these M-class stars, around these red dwarf stars. But one of the things I found fascinating about this is I'm used to thinking about these red dwarf stars as you know, sort of like Proxima Centauri stars, where they're much, much, much lower in luminosity and very cool and very low in mass. In fact, just a little bit above the mass threshold required to ignite nuclear fusion. But TOI 700 is really on the very massive end of M stars. In fact, it's almost the next class up. It's almost a K star, uh, which is a lot more sun-like. And so, I've sort of heard things about people say, oh, well, maybe worlds around M stars aren't habitable because uh, their stars flare too much and all the atmosphere would inevitably be gone. And what you're sort of telling me is that might be true for worlds around very low mass M dwarfs, but not necessarily for all of them and not for this world, TOI-700D in particular.
1: Yes, there's lots of different trade-offs when it comes to both detection and characterization of planets around M-dwarf stars. So the smaller the host star, the easier it is for us to detect planets around it when it comes to both the transit and the radial velocity method. When it comes to habitability, there's some trade-offs uh, in terms of M-dwarf size as well. So we think that the earlier class M-dwarfs, the bigger, brighter M-dwarfs, have a shorter lived activity cycle. So M-dwarfs are famous for throwing off lots of stellar flares. And we think that this radiation could be harmful for both a planet maintaining an atmosphere and potentially for whatever life may or may not exist on the planet. Uh, And the lower down in M-dwarf size we go, the longer this activity period lives out on this star. So that could potentially impact habitability of these types of planets.
0: Wow. So if I if I were some sort of life that happened to live on one of these uh, M-dwarf planets that was a very low mass M-dwarf, uh, you're saying I'd want some sort of shield, like I might do really well if I lived... Uh, At the bottom of a deep ocean where I could swim to deep waters to escape this uh, potentially lethal radiation or I might do well to live somewhere uh, in a cave where I can go and hide and shield myself when these flaring events came because this is this is significant enough that it could not only pose a danger to the atmosphere but if any life managed to persist lower down on this world um, it might be threatened by these energy bursts as well.
1: Correct, and we also think that a planet's magnetic field could help protect the whole planet on a global scale. So, potentially, that saves you from having to go and hide in a cave.
0: Well, I, I'll be safe rather than sorry. I'm, uh, I'm biologically complex enough and well adapted to <laughs> life on Earth that I don't, I don't want to take my chances. But if I were a microorganism on one of these other worlds, um, boy, it sure would be nice to just be hardy enough to not have to somehow detect and flee from uh, from whatever random events were occurring on this on my sun.
1: definitely um, and then one more thing
0: go ahead okay.
1: so then when it comes to characterizing planet atmospheres what you're doing is measuring atmospheres via the transit spectroscopy method so the planet passes between you and its host star and some of the starlight shines through the planet atmosphere and interacts with the molecules. And so based on the spectral signatures, we can see what makes up the planet's atmosphere. And so because you're looking at the starlight through the planet, you have a combination of molecular signatures from both the star and the planet. So fractionally, the bigger the planet is with respect to the host star, the stronger your signature is going to be. So the smaller the star, it does actually make it easier in some regards to characterize these planet atmospheres. So this is what's so exciting about the Trappist system. Trappist-1 famously is a very, very small, cool star, and the planets, it has seven planets. They're all roughly Earth-sized. And we think that we should be able to characterize their atmospheres, if they have them, hopefully, because we think that we should be able to characterize their atmospheres because the planets are big compared to their host star, the signal is something that we're able to measure.
0: Interesting. So it sounds like all of this really relies on instrumentation, on the quality of what you can measure relative to the system that they're in. And this is... uh, this is this sort of bias that we've had in exoplanet sciences really since we started detecting exoplanets, right? Because the, the first exoplanets that we saw, they were from this stellar wobble method or this radial velocity method where you have a, a massive planet orbiting its host star. And while we know planets, they make orbits around their stars, the stars actually make small orbits themselves because they don't just, it's not the planet orbits the star and the star is stationary, it's that the planet and the star orbit their mutual center of mass. So the first exoplanets that we found were the easiest ones to find, which is where you have a high mass planet relative to the mass of the star orbiting at a very short distance. So the first planets that we found, we called them hot Jupiters, which makes sense because Those are the easiest type to find, but that isn't the most abundant type out there. Now what you're saying is, well, a similar effect is going to take place for measuring exoatmospheres, that if you have a larger planet that orbits a smaller star, so the planet's radius is large compared to the radius of the star, then when the planet passes in front of the star, you're going to be able to look not only at all the light coming from the star, but a fraction of that light that filters through that, I guess, ring of atmosphere around the planet. And where that starlight passes through the atmosphere, that's going to give you your exoatmosphere signal. That's what you're looking for. So you're going to be able to see the easiest signals to see first and most strongly.
1: So one of the things we're going to look for with James Webb is observing bigger planets. So bigger planets will have a more extended atmosphere. So maybe even if they're around a larger star, we'll still be able to characterize what makes up their atmospheres.
0: All right, all right. So that's one type of doing it. It sounds like James Webb will be good at doing that because its instruments are optimized for doing that. Um, But you can learn Different things about a system by using different instruments on it. Um, right now, this system in particular, TOI seven hundred and TOI seven hundred D in particular, this planet, um, they've been observed with different instruments. I believe you you found it and you characterized it with NASA's tests, but that isn't the only. Uh, instrument that you viewed it with. You alluded to NASA Spitzer earlier, and have there been any spectroscopic measurements of this as well? I'm curious, what have you measured this system with so far, and what have those different measurements taught you that you, that you only learn by combining the different observations you have?
1: That's right. So almost exactly a year ago, uh, we first observed TOI 700D transiting with Spitzer. Um, We wanted to confirm that the planet transit was real. It was such a faint signal at first and when the data first came down, it was such a faint signal and we wanted to confirm that the signal was real. So TOI 700 is in the test continuous viewing zone in the Southern Hemisphere and there were just a few sectors out when we started realizing that there might be a planet there Uh, And so my collaborators, Joey Rodriguez and Andrew Vanderberg put in a Spitzer proposal to observe the transit of TOI 700D in order to confirm that it was in fact a planet and not something like an instrumental artifact that could be masquerading as a planet and throwing us off.
0: Interesting, interesting. So um, I know that with NASA's Kepler, About half of the exoplanet candidates that came in uh, turned out to not be exoplanets at all. Most of them turned out to be eclipsing binary stars. Uh, But that 50% false positive rate was much better than before NASA's Kepler, where it was like a 90% false positive rate. Um, And so now with TESS, you're saying you can look at the test data on its own and a planet like TOI 700C or B, that comes through clear and there really isn't any doubt. But you can also get something that's suggestive and shows good evidence of a planet, even like an Earth-sized planet around the right temperature for liquid water, assuming it has an Earth-like atmosphere, uh, around a star that's only 40% the mass of the sun, um, but you do want to confirm it. You do want follow-up observations and an infrared space telescope like NASA's Spitzer was, and good for you that you got those observations in before the telescope got decommissioned earlier this year. Um, that's fantastic because you can actually use that to confirm it. What does What does NASA Spitzer have with its infrared capabilities that lets you measure this and confirm this in a way that you really couldn't do with NASA's TESS on its own?
1: So Spitzer was able to observe this transit at much higher cadence than we were able to do with TESS. So TESS, uh, back when it started, the fastest it could get measurements of the star was once every two minutes but Spitzer was able to achieve much higher cadence. Um, And so that gave us many more data points, which would help show the full transit in better resolution, essentially.
0: Interesting. So when we're talking about this, right, when you say cadence, you mean, okay, look, the planet takes time to go across the disk of the sun or the star from our perspective, that you're going to have this time interval where the planet starts to cross across the face of its st- of its parent star, and that's going to result in a dip where the brightness of the star appears to drop, and then it's going to stay across where a hundred percent of the planet is blocking out a portion of that star and that's gonna last for a little while probably a few minutes but not longer than that and then it's gonna transition off of the star's disk once again and with TESS you might only get a few data points that's probably enough to tell you oh it looks like something's happening but you don't get the detail that you want to sort of see like okay um you know I could do a lot more if I had a hundred data points than if I had four and what you're saying is Spitzer because it It basically is a higher quality telescope designed and optimized for sort of these narrower field views, smaller viewing areas, and maybe has more light gathering power than TESS as well, uh, that it can observe this system for a shorter amount of time, get that high signal to noise ratio, and then go on and take another observation. So you're getting this every few seconds instead of every few minutes, and that's an enormous difference.
1: Exactly. Yeah, like you mentioned, all of those things definitely help to make the Spitzer follow-up for this system and others that TESS observes um, much, much stronger signals than we were able to achieve with TESS.
0: Interesting. So when we're talking about systems like this and planets like this, you mentioned not just the TOI-700 system, but also the TRAPPIST-1 system. And this is kind of one of the Uh, mission goals that was in mind when they pitched NASA's TESS is to say, look, um, there's a big sky out there. TESS is going to survey almost all of it. And what it's explicitly going to be good at picking out is these nearby red dwarf systems, mostly red dwarf systems uh, within a few hundred light years that have planets around them that transit across the disk of their stars and this will be excellent because if we can identify where are some interesting planets that this is basically a target picker for telescopes like james webb so i'm really excited that just about one year from now the james webb space telescope is slated to launch knock on wood knock on i'll everyone hear that i knocked on wood um we we are really looking forward to this this is going to be a revolutionary observatory um, in a whole slew of ways. But a big one is for exoplanet systems. By picking out this set of targets for it, uh, this tells James Webb, which has an extraordinarily narrow field of view, where you should look, when you should look, and what you should be looking for. You, We talked a little bit about transit spectroscopy already. What is the big thing that James Webb is Going to be able to teach us for these candidate worlds that that we could get a transit spectroscopy signal from. Ooh,
1: tough question. Hang on, give me a second.
0: <laughs> or or is that the wrong question? Is James Webb not actually good for transit spectroscopy? Is it better for other types of observing?
1: Yeah, sorry, <laughs> not an atmospheres person, so I don't think about this as much as I probably should so I don't have my answer formulated Um, but it's definitely good for planetary emission measurements as well
0: Well, interesting. So it's not just an absorption signal that you're looking for. You're also looking for planetary emission signals. So it's not just like, oh, sunlight filters through the atmosphere. The atmosphere has molecules in it. The molecules are going to make absorption features where they absorb that starlight. And then you see what starlight's left and what's missing from it. And you say, ah, the atmosphere has... I don't know carbon dioxide in it or molecular nitrogen in it or whatever signatures it has at whatever wavelengths i can observe there you see the spectral dips you're saying it also has emission signatures like like you have excited atoms or molecules in the atmosphere that emit their own spectral signature
1: that's correct so because james webb is pushing so far into the infrared one thing we can do is look at the emission from the planets themselves so these planets are not as hot as stars but they still emit in the thermal infrared just like we humans do Uh, everything that exists emits uh, thermal radiation and so we're able to see as the planets go around the star and then pass behind the star uh, a difference in signal in the emission the total emission. And what we do is measure the emission from the planet versus the occulted emission in order to characterize the planet itself. And so this lets us look at some smaller rocky planets that might not be suitable candidates for transmission spectroscopy, but we're still able to look at these planets and get an idea of what they might be like, whether or not they have an atmosphere, how the heat distribution is working, and how hot the planet itself is.
0: Interesting. So this is like the reverse transit signal. This is not when the planet passes in front of the star and blocks out a little bit of the star's light. This is when the planet passes behind the star and we can't see it. And so we could compare all of this light that we were getting from the star and planet combined over all of this time and then when the planet is occulted by the star when the planet passes behind the star with respect to our line of sight uh it's no longer emitting where we can see it because it's obscured so there should be a you know a smaller signal a slightly different signal so if you can do i guess uh differential imaging or the equivalent where you say okay here's the signal we get when the planet is visible and here's the signal we get when the planet's not visible and what's the difference there that allows you to say ah and that tells us this is what the planet's emitting so if the planet is emitting something that the star isn't emitting like i don't know if there's a signature of perhaps molecular oxygen in there um, or perhaps excited singly ionized methane or something like that um, or an aurora borealis or something like that you'll be able to you'll be able to pick that out by using this technique
1: i'm not sure quite how good we'll be uh so i'm not sure if we'll be able to see something like an aurora borealis but
0: well, I'm, I'm just dreaming ready. over here. I don't know the <laughs> details. I'm just uh, I'm just being wishful thinking over here.
1: <laughs> one day, one day we'll be able
0: to. Yeah, but this is this is also really fascinating because it brings up an interesting point is I feel like the mission profile of a lot of these missions like NASA's tests, they're really designed um with a with a view to what are we going to do with them, well, that's informed by what other instruments do we have or will we have? That that one instrument on its own, you know, we talk about, oh, it's, it's shown us this and it allowed us to discover this and that's normally what we get excited about, but it's actually part of this larger picture, right? If you were to step back and take a broader view of this field, um, you know, there are some really big questions that you're trying to answer and the individual work that you're doing um you know with these systems with with nasa's tests with some of these other instruments they're answering aspects of these questions but there's there's a larger goal you're pursuing here isn't there
1: that's right we're trying to really characterize these planets to the best of our abilities and each measurement only gives us a small picture of what this planet might actually be like. So TESS, for example, uh, is a transit mission, and therefore we only get the planet radius from TESS. And that doesn't tell us what the planet is made of, whether or not it has an atmosphere, uh, the mass of the planet, all this information we need to piece together from other missions, just working together as a community in order to fully characterize even just one planet.
0: So if you if you know the radius, which you can do from a transit me- method because you know both the radius of the planet because you can calculate, okay, um, I can see how much of the star's disk is blocked by the light. So I know the physical size of the planet if I know the physical size of the star and, and we know enough about astronomy that we know how big these stars are. Um, So that's one piece of information. Because we know the mass of the star um, and we can determine the period of the planet, that allows us to infer its orbital distance. Um, And because it's transiting, we know roughly, like to within a fraction of a degree or so, we know, okay, that it orbits in the plane along our line of sight to this solar system. but if we want to get something like what's the mass of this planet, we would need a radio velocity measurement of the star that could detect the effect of that particular planet. And that gets harder not only the farther out and lower mass your planet gets, but it's also confounded by the presence of other planets, of which there are at least two around this star. And then if you want to start doing things like measuring exo-atmospheres, you need to start either doing transit spectroscopy or this differential imaging to pull out emission signatures. And that needs an entirely different type of telescope. So I I feel like this is the blind man and the elephant story, right, where where you have all the blind people touching the different parts of the elephant, uh, but because no one can see the full elephant, they, they all draw different conclusions about what they're looking at. I know this is a problem astronomers are trying to avoid by talking to each other, by collaborating, and by combining these data sets so that you can gain the greatest amount of information possible about... You know these different aspects of all of these exoplanets
1: well I hope that astronomers are doing slightly better than folks did characterizing the elephant <laughs> I think so far we've been doing a good job of talking with other folks in the field um, So this is within astronomy and then it's also important that we talk with people in related fields so planetary scientists who study solar system planets and heliophysicists are really important to talk to to study stellar activity. Um, But from specifically looking at the test point of view, we built on the Gaia mission, for example. So we use Gaia parameters to tell us about these host stars and how far away they are and what type of stars they are. And then we look at it with tests and we have a bunch of coordinated groups doing follow up for tests. Um, So ground-based telescopes trying to confirm planets with transit method, and spectroscopy groups trying to look at the host star and the planets themselves, and then groups measuring the masses of these planets, doing radial velocity measurements, as you mentioned. So this is all large, coordinated group effort, uh, kind of working towards the next step of using James Webb to characterize these planets
0: now that's that's really fascinating and as we discussed earlier james webb will get us a lot of interesting information about many of these worlds but also its capabilities are going to be limited but i also think ahead to some of the other missions that we have uh coming up or the other observatories we have under construction like i start thinking about ooh what could we do with like the GMT or the ELT or these 30 meter class ground-based telescopes, what will they be able to see when they come online later this decade and start observing these planets? Will they be able to do direct imaging of some of them? Will they be able to pick out interesting light features that that we can't see with other instruments? What if we look ahead to the future and we get an observatory? Like, I know there are two really fascinating ones that have been proposed for the currently ongoing NASA decadal survey, which is basically looking to pick out what is the flagship mission or what are the flagship missions we should be pursuing after James Webb and Nancy Grace Roman, formerly known as WFIRST. Um, And two of those options, the Habex mission and the LUVOIR mission, could potentially even get direct images of a planet like TOI-700D. What would you like to see as far as the future of astronomy goes for learning more about these planets that might orbit smaller, cooler, redder stars than our own, but could still be interesting planets for the possibility of life?
1: So I think one of the main goals that we as exoplanet scientists are working towards is looking to answer the question, are we alone in the universe? So one of the things that I'm most excited for is for these larger, bigger class telescopes like LUVOIR that might be able to make measurements of atmospheres of planets like TOI-700D to potentially look for biosignatures, indications that there might be life on a planet like that.
0: You know, one of the one of the things that I don't think uh, non astronomers appreciate is the power of of statistics. Is what you gain by going to larger and larger data sets, right? It's we get very excited as the general public thinking about the first thing that's like this, or the new discovery that proves these things actually exist in the universe. But as a scientist, I tend to get more excited about, okay, look, if each one of these planets is a chance, or each one of these new discoveries is an opportunity where something remarkable could exist, then I start thinking about, okay, well, what if we have things? thousands or millions or billions of them like what what are the things that we start finding then so when it comes to like these really big questions about life in the universe right of course it's going to be A very exciting thing that we found candidate planets that could have life on them. It's going to be a remarkable leap forward when we start finding our first world that actually has a signature of life on it. And it's going to be even more exciting when we start finding multiple worlds that have signatures of life on them. And we can start comparing and characterizing them and maybe even start looking for life that's complex differentiated sustaining or you know dare i even say it conceivably intelligent or technologically advanced like that's that's where i think people don't recognize the importance of developing these new tools to detect larger samples of what we've just discovered the tip of the iceberg for
1: That's one of the things that's so exciting about the test mission. So it's designed to observe the whole sky. Granted, only the brightest, nearest objects in the sky, but it's looking everywhere at all different types of stars. And so we're learning more about what's out there just by looking at a broader swath of the sky. Previously, the Kepler mission just looked at one patch of the sky, and it was about the size of the palm of your hand if you hold your hand out at arm's length.
0: I'm doing it now. I'm doing it now. That's uh, that's a fair chunk of the sky, but it's also, you know, I, I, I look at that and I'm like, well, how many of my hands at arm length would it take to cover the whole sky? And I'm thinking probably around a thousand or so, somewhere between a few hundred and maybe a thousand or two. Um,
1: Definitely a lot of hands necessary.
0: Yeah, I would I would need more hands. I would need to be like uh, Netero from Hunter x Hunter, and no one is going to get that reference, so I apologize for even making it. But um, you would. You would need a whole lot of hands to do that. Uh, but with Tess, I know the, the way this works is... It has this field of view that basically looks like four windows. If one of the windows could go up to pretty much the the zenith, and another one comes down to almost the horizon, that it has basically these four observing windows. And it goes around the sky. And you get the northern hemisphere, and then you get the southern hemisphere. Or maybe I've got the order backwards. But you do one, and then the other. Um, And what this means is you get about a month of observing time around the celestial equator, but towards the celestial poles, because as you rotate something around... The axis, the part that's close to the poles, kind of gets continuous coverage, so you can get these longer period things, and that has to include this TOI 700 system because, other than that, I can't conceive of any way that you'd get a planet with a 36-day period if you're only doing a month of data at a time.
1: Right. So that's one of the tricky things about the test mission is that each of these, what they're they're called sectors observed for about 28 days and so sometimes if you're looking at a star you only get one sector Uh, so you might miss planets or not catch longer period planets or maybe you only get one transit and that's not enough to confirm that it is a planet
0: so you wouldn't get like you wouldn't be able to get an Earth-like planet you this isn't really good for getting uh, potentially habitable worlds around Sun like stars but this is great for these sort of solar system in miniature systems like these m dwarfs that you're talking about like like this is what tess is really good for is let's look at these scaled down systems like a trappist style system or a toi 700 style system um that's where it really shines isn't it right and
1: i'm really excited now so tess started off in the Southern Hemisphere, that's where we found the TOI 700 system in the Southern Continuous Viewing Zone. It observed the North, and now it's in what's called the Extended Mission, and so it's reobserving the Southern Hemisphere. So this means we get another year of observations of all of those targets that we looked at during the first year of test observations. And this time around, we've kind of worked out all of the kinks with the instrument, and We've increased the cadence, as we talked about before, the uh, amount of time that TESS observes for. So we've shrunk that down so we can get observations every 20 seconds for some of our targets. And the full-frame images, the whole pictures of the sky that we had before were taken at 30 minutes. We've now decreased that to 10 minutes. And so this is really exciting for, as I mentioned, getting more resolution of those transits and for things like stellar pulsations and flares of targets that you weren't able to fully resolve the shape of before. Now with this higher cadence, we can see some of the interesting features and do some really cool stellar astrophysics too.
0: I mean, that really sounds like you're getting like three times the amount of useful data. And I know you're just you're breaking it up into smaller chunks. But if you can still get that useful signal to noise ratio on a faster time scale, that should mean you're able to see more. Fine features, right, rather than the coarser features. So perhaps if you have a a very close in planet that transits very quickly, instead of it just giving one data point that you'd throw out, now if you get like multiple data points, maybe you'll detect inner planets that you didn't even know were there. Maybe you'll be able to see the dip of a transit signal of a farther out planet that you weren't able to see very well before. So I I feel like there's I feel like there's a lot of um a lot of potentially interesting discoveries that can be made just by doing it this way, just by saying like okay, we're going to get data more frequently from tests, um, that is going to increase your observing power all on its own.
1: Definitely. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is now with 20-second data, we might be able to detect transit timing variations. So planets that are orbiting have gravitational tugs on each other, and that might impact when, from our point of view, the planets transit in front of their star. And this sort of thing can be on the order of a couple minutes, maybe even seconds, which we weren't able to pick out very easily before with two-minute data. But now with twenty-second data, this is definitely something that people will be looking
0: for. That's really fascinating too, because that tells me, you know, if I think about a system like um, the Pluto Charon system, right, where you have, uh, where you have, uh, I guess, a binary planet, where you have a. A planet with a large moon where the center of mass is outside of the larger body um, what that basically means is you know what um when the planet transits um depending on where that moon is the planet might transit sooner or later compared to you know all the other things we look at so um by doing it this way you're saying you know honestly, if there's a large mass moon around any of these planets, then we'll be able to look at the transit timing variation, and we'll be able to draw the conclusion if we get enough observations of not only whether this planet has a massive moon, but we might get a measure of how massive relative to the planet this moon actually is.
1: And it's also really good for measuring the masses of the planets within the system itself. So because of this gravitational dance that the planets are doing, causing these timing variations, uh, we were able to measure the masses of the planets of the TRAPPIST system. Um, And if you were trying to get radial velocity measurements of TRAPPIST from the ground, it's a really tough system to go after for a number of reasons. So number one, the star is very dim, so it's hard to get observations of. Two, the star is super active, and those can confound your observations. And then on top of that, it's a multi-planet system and so you'll have all of the signals from all of the planets in the system uh, causing wobble on the host star that make the measurement really difficult to obtain.
0: So, I want to switch gears a little bit for a minute because right now we've sort of focused on what we're finding, what's out there. Um, I'd like to ask about some specific systems that are out there, right? When we 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 have uh a few famous systems like the TOI 700 D system and we have like the TRAPPIST-1 system with its seven planets around it, seven earth-sized planets around it. Um are there any planets or planetary candidates that you're particularly excited about and if so, what is it that makes those systems notable or interesting to you?
1: I'm going to play favorites here and tell you about a system that I've been working on. Uh, so I've been looking at Mic and AUMIC-B. AUMIC is another M-Dwarf star, uh, definitely biased. Love me some M-Dwarfs. And it has a few notable features. So for one, the system is extremely young. We think it's about 20 to 25 million years old. And so this gives us a lot of insight into how these systems form. Um, it's a rare occasion that we're able to get measurements like this of such a young system. And we can see that AUMIC, the star, has a debris disk around it. And then interior to that, we found one planet, AUMIC-B, using test data. And so we're able to see this system that's Actively forming planets and take a look at it and see what's going on So like you mentioned before with statistics, it's kind of an interesting thing where we can't observe a system over its whole lifetime but if we can build up a Compilation of different systems at different ages in different progressions of their lifetime we can get a fuller view of how these systems form and evolve over time
0: that's pretty fascinating. So this is like somewhere between what we'd expect for it's not quite like the star is actively forming and we're in that nebulous phase that like Alma is good at observing and it's not quite in this uh late stage phase that, you know, that Telescopes like TESS and uh, Kepler have traditionally been observing, but we have sort of get these in-between cases of what is the what do these solar systems look like when they're still young, but they haven't fully formed yet. So it's not like we can watch one system evolve over time, but if we get large samples of systems, we can start filling in these gaps and understanding what these pictures are like where... Um, where I guess we don't have we don't have other information to fill in those gaps. like this is, this is really going to be the first way scientifically that we get to address this.:
1: Right. And I'm also really interested in AUmic because historically it's one of the most famous flare stars. Um, so we've been studying my group has been studying this system at a bunch of different wavelengths to study how the flares are produced in the star. And then I've been looking specifically at the test data to both detect flares and to model them. So TESS, as we know, is looking at lots of M-dwarfs and these stars are very active and the flares can make it difficult to find planets around these types of stars. So we actually found that uh, in test sector one, when uh, this discovery was led by Peter Klavchan, we found that there were two transits of AUMIC-B in the first sector of test data And these transits were actually both contaminated by flares. And so the transit times were wrong and we got kind of confused about the parameters of the planet and the system because of the flares. And so I've been working on modeling the flares that we see in the light curve in conjunction with planet transits. And also AUMIC has really interesting spot patterns. So the cooler spots on the star can change the intensity of the starlight. So it's brighter or dimmer, depending on how many spots you have on the surface and so this leads to really fun and interesting patterns and features in the test data
0: interesting interesting so let's see so that's that's a fascinating thing because when i think about these stars you know you had mentioned earlier that when a star is born it's basically going to flare And the duration of how long it flares, we think, is related to its mass. So by looking at a star like the one you're talking about, and we're seeing that, okay, it's this many millions of years old, it's still young, it's still flaring, are we basically learning how these planetary systems are going to be exposed to flares and this type of radiation? over the course of their life by making these observations of these young low mass stars and seeing how their flare activity works and therefore we can sort of, you know, make conjectures about how these planets will be affected over their lifetimes?
1: Yes, that's another thing that I'm working on with uh, my team, the test team at Goddard. Um, And in particular, that's another area where it's really important for astronomers to collaborate with planetary scientists. So we look at these stars and we're able to measure the flare rates in test light curves. um, But we also want to know how much the star is emitting in UV or X-ray, because this could potentially impact a planet atmosphere so much as even to just completely dissociate the planet's atmosphere. And so we work with planetary scientists and give them this data as input for models and so then they can take this information and plug it in and see what happens to these planets over time and they're really the experts in figuring out what would happen to these atmospheres under different conditions.
0: It sounds like what's what's really going on is, uh, you know, we we talk about it like, oh, we've discovered these like thousands of planets and they're around these stars. And we know that stars like this flare and stars like this might not flare. And so here's where we should look for life. And here's where it's probably useless to look for life. Uh, you're saying that, look, Ethan, all of those things that you're saying, there's like, that might be the sort of, you know, average picture that we're looking at. But really, we don't understand this picture all that well, we're still learning a whole lot about it. Um, And these worlds that you might be quick to write off as not very well suited to life, don't write them off yet, uh, because we're still learning a whole lot about them. And if, if we're looking at them and saying, like, okay I'm drawing conclusions about what the history of this planet is and I'm drawing conclusions about what the you know history of the stars activity around it is causing for the planet um we really are only painting with real broad strokes right now um there's all sorts of observations that are going on there's all sorts of things that we're learning take these conclusions as provisional um, and make sure they're subject to change because we're we're talking to each other. We're considering things that really are being considered for the first time with this quality of data. So um, be prepared that some of these things that people said five years ago, ten years ago, and that people are saying today, uh, five years down the road, we might not think the same thing any longer.
1: Definitely. So... I mean, even in the case of Earth, we're not entirely sure how life started. So there's a hypothesis that maybe we need UV radiation in order to kickstart life. So maybe these M dwarfs are actually doing the right thing with lots of UV emission. Um, We'll see
0: yeah and that's something i'll have to confess that's something i've always been a little curious about you know i would have thought that our sun would be a much better producer of uv radiation than something like an m dwarf star because i'm like oh m dwarfs they're lower luminosity they're lower temperature and therefore a smaller fraction of their energy should fall in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum but yet when we talk about them we talk about these uv stars are, we talk about these M dwarf stars as being very good UV emitters. So do you happen to know why that is?
1: Yes, so M dwarf stars don't emit black body emission in UV, where whereas the sun at a higher temperature does emit a little bit. But they do emit as a result of flares. Um, so these flares are just uh, events of magnetic reconnection that convert magnetic energy within the star into kinetic energy, and you get all sorts of line emission and thermal emission within the star uh, that causes emission all the way from x-ray to radio.
0: Interesting. So basically, you get these these superheated regions, uh, either from the solar corona or from within the star that uh, they expel this high-energy radiation, and this, you know, X-ray, X-ray, ultraviolet, you know, all the way down the line um, is going to be incident on any planet that happens to be close by in the solar system. And because these systems are smaller in scale and the planets are closer, they're going to be getting a large amount overall of X-ray and ultraviolet radiation all at once. And this could either be good or bad or both depending on what specific uh what specific piece of the puzzle you're looking at
1: exactly i guess it depends on whether or not you're an optimist or a pessimist in this situation
0: oh well don't don't ask me i tend to i tend to be (laughs) a little bit of a grumpy old man when it comes to this sort of thing I think
1: 2020 is doing that to all of us.
0: <laughs> that might be true. That might be true. I might take a look at this next year and say, like, okay, you know what? Uh, flares. That's good for life, right? Ultraviolet <laughs> radiation. That's good, right? Forget about ionizing the atmosphere. Forget about stripping things away. Um, this is going to provide like catalytic energy that we actually need to spark life from happen for happening. Like that's that's what it's all about. So maybe that'll turn out to be the case. <laughs>
1: There we go. The optimistic view. Yeah. I would, say, I would say these flares are probably not great for life, but the degree to which they are bad for life is potentially up for debate still.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned something, too, about uh, we still don't know what sort of conditions these planets have, right? They, they don't rotate on their axis like Earth does probably, although the early ones might still be rotating. Um, but they still, because they have short orbital periods, if they have magnetic dynamos in their core. And you know, some of these systems that are potentially interesting, like I think around the Trappist one system, there's an interesting planet that has an orbital period of just 11 days. Um, just that orbital angular momentum could provide enough that, you know what, we might have a planet-wide magnetic field that acts as a shield against, solar wind particles, cosmic particles, even solar flares and that type of radiation the way Earth's magnetic field does. So I wouldn't rule that out yet either. At least I don't think uh, scientists have ruled that out yet for uh, being a possibility around these M-dwarf worlds.
1: I think we're still trying to maintain our optimism when it comes to M-dwarfs, partially because for now, given the technology we currently have, those are the best systems for us to look at.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, in general, uh, you know, you have the M dwarfs that are very close to the border of, okay, if I were any less massive, I wouldn't even be a star because I wouldn't be fusing hydrogen into helium through the proton-proton chain in my core. But you also have M dwarfs that are about five times that mass, which are on the border of M dwarfs and K stars, which is, you know which is an important transition to astronomers, but it seems like the higher mass M dwarfs might actually be uh, giving rise to systems that are more Earth-like than they are, say, Proxima Centauri system-like. And I think that that's not something where there's such a clear line. It seems like there's sort of a, a gradual and maybe even a chaotic transition there.
1: That's definitely one of the things that I hope Tess will be able to answer moving forward. Um, So we're able to look at a wider span of M-dwarfs than we have before. Um, So hopefully we'll be able to find lots and lots of M-dwarf planets and we can do some statistics and see what these planets are like and if we can draw any conclusions based on the spectral type of these stars.
0: All right. In that case, what I want to do is I want to ask you to uh, to speculate way far into the future. So I want you to imagine that we wake up tomorrow and it's 2040, right? 20 years have gone by because I can look back 20 years and say, what did we know about exoplanets back in the year 2000 where we had maybe maybe a hundred of them probably just a few dozen they were almost all hot Jupiters and you had a couple of pulsar planets and uh Things like the transit method had not really even begun in earnest. You were getting a few direct images of planets from Hubble. You um, you were getting uh, these hot Jupiters and maybe some, uh, some Saturn-like worlds that were a little farther out or longer period. Uh, but that was kind of it. We know so much more now, and that's mostly been informed by improvements in technology. Now you know what's coming down the pipeline. You know that we're getting 30 meter class ground-based telescopes, we're getting all sky or almost all sky surveys like uh, the Vera Rubin Observatory, we're going to get James Webb in space, we're going to get uh, the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope, formerly W first in space. and optimistically we may even get a Habex or a Louvoir style mission um you start thinking about this when you envision the field 20 years from now i i won't go as far as to ask you like what do you think we'll find but uh, i will say what are some questions that are open questions today that you think we can expect to have the answer to in a couple of decades?
1: Mm. Well, you started on this and my thought immediately went to how many planets will we have by then? So I know that TESS is finding TOIs, TESS Objects of Interest, uh, roughly at a rate of a thousand per year just for now. And you mentioned a number of future missions and I know we'll also have the next Gaia data release, which should hopefully find a whole bunch of planets through astrometry as well. Um, So we'll definitely have several orders of magnitude more planets than we have at the moment given those things and all of the surveys that you mentioned. So that will definitely allow us to do a lot of statistics and looking at systems as a whole, which I think is really fascinating. It's not necessarily the most glamorous uh, you know not the flashy discoveries but I think it's really really fascinating to be able to study everything like that
0: and that, that's a, that's an easy one to predict, right? Because it's a slam dunk, right? You you take the same or superior tools and longer observing time, and your statistics are going to explode. And that also means, by necessity, you're going to reveal a, a number of rarer or more uncommon or exotic objects just because you're looking at more things. So like, like we talked about earlier, each one of these is a chance. So if you're like, OK, there are these rare things out there that we haven't really identified or we only saw one of them and we were like I don't know what that is and we threw it away Um, you know this is saying like look we're gonna get a whole lot of things we're gonna get a whole lot of things we're looking at and they're gonna be um, they're not only gonna give us increased statistics of what we already have found but they're also going to give us new things that you know that might just be rare objects but But if we get enough of a sample size, we're going to start finding like, I don't know, maybe we'll find a potentially habitable planet on a highly eccentric orbit where it seems like it's habitable for part of its year and then it's frozen for part of its year or some oddball like that.
1: Definitely. You're just making me think of Game of Thrones. Winter is coming as this planet moves further away from the star.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's actually kind of fun. Uh, Some people uh, have played around with... Uh, is there a way that you can have a chaotic but stable orbit where, uh, where either the axis goes all wonky or the orbital distance goes all wonky? And I think that the uh, gravitational dance of Pluto's moons means that the outer Plutonian moons um, rotate irregularly that they don't they're not regular rotators about a single axis or with a constant period that the mutual tugs of Pluto and Charon as well as the different moons on each other um they make the they make days and nights and seasons irregular um and i think that's really fascinating because we can discover potentially um star system analogs of that where maybe if we had a tight, low-mass binary, either a either a red-dwarf binary or a red-dwarf-brown-dwarf combo or something like that, then perhaps some of these, you know, closer-in planets around M-dwarfs, they might actually have a regular days, nights, and or seasons as well.
1: Definitely. Tests should be good for—we've already found a few—planets, uh, circumbinary planets, planets around two or more stars, which is really fascinating.
0: That is wow. fascinating. That we've been—I know we've been uh, calling them Tatooine worlds um, <laughs> after Star Wars, but I, but I—I I think that's fascinating. You know, one of the one of the things that sort of blew my mind when I first learned it is that only about half of the stars in the universe are in singlet star systems like ours is that the other that fully half of all the stars in the universe are in binary, trinary, or even richer multi-star systems, and that something like, I want to say 5 to 10% of them are in quaternary or greater systems, which is just nuts to me.
1: It's crazy, and disentangling the planets that are around these stars is non-trivial, definitely requires a lot of effort and care, but it's something that we're able to do now, which is really exciting, and I think that'll improve moving forward. But definitely on the flashier side of things, I think it would be really exciting if we did have some evidence of biosignatures on exoplanets come 2040. I suspect that we, knowing astronomers, we will still be arguing over whether or not these signals are real in 2040, but hopefully we have some tantalizing candidates come then.
0: Well, I'm going to go back to being a curmudgeon for a bit, and I'll tell you that I fully expect there will be at least uh, five or ten false positive announcements that people make before uh, the community actually robustly says, like, oh, like, this is actually a legitimate biosignature rather than, hey, we found life. It's like, you didn't find life. That's methane. You made that inorganically. Like, oh, well, we found life over here. It's like, no, that's oxygen, and that was made inorganically like this. and. You know, I, I imagine we're gonna have a whole bunch of false starts before we get uh, something where people are like, "Oh, like, this is real robust evidence for what we're looking for. But I would be, I would just be, so happy if we could look forward jump forward 20 years from now and actually be able to point to a star in the sky and say we know there's a planet there and this planet has these um biologically suggestive signatures and when we've done these follow-up direct imaging observations we see lots of exciting things about this planet like it clearly has continents and oceans and clouds in its atmosphere and you know there are there are all sorts of possibilities that really get my mind racing because we don't know what we're going to find until we look. We don't know how rare or common these things are until we start looking. And we're going to have the tools to look that we've never had before. And that, you know, even even as I'm like, you know, oh, we're going to have these false positives, I, I can't help but, like, be optimistic that we could find something that would really change how we view our place in the universe forever.
1: Definitely. And yeah, kind of going off of that, we don't know the unknown unknowns. So when we first started looking for exoplanets, we found these hot Jupiters that were unlike anything we saw in our solar system. And then we started finding things like super Earth, mini Neptune type planets, which we also don't have here. So I'm excited to see with the increasing technology, there's something else that we haven't seen yet that we haven't looked at. What else could be out there?
0: yeah i i think that's a really fascinating question that um you know i think we've already gotten some surprises like we've we found disintegrating planets i wouldn't be surprised if many of these uh you know planets that um turn out to be you know these intermediate between earth and neptune sized planets if they weren't like exposed cores of former gas giant planets that have lost their giant gas envelopes. Um, I I have a feeling that um, that there are going to be not only all of these things that we can imagine, but like you said about the unknown unknowns, there are going to be things that we find that even astronomers, as creative as we as we are, have failed to imagine.
1: I'm definitely most excited for the things that we don't predict, because... We don't know what they are, and they could be something extremely unique.
0: Do you have any uh, wild speculations that you've made or that you have thought of that you would just be sort of like, it would just kind of be the bee's knees for you if you found like these things actually do exist, even uh, even though people don't typically talk about them?
1: Ooh. I'll have to get back to you on that at some point. (laughs) I haven't done enough wild speculating, but now I'm (laughs) just sitting here thinking about what else could I dream up?
0: Yeah, I mean, because that's that's one of the things that always fascinates me is as wild as our imaginations are, um, reality has often surprised us and given us things that that we we didn't really dream up that we we thought like oh like that's just like a pie in the sky idea or that's an old discarded idea from 60 years ago that you know probably isn't right and yet here we are and hey what's this oh i thought i was going to find a planet orbiting this giant star but it turns out this is a transiting uh i don't know black dwarf star that just for some reason it's already cooled and i don't even know how it did that um that's probably not very likely but there might be things out there that we also deem as not very likely and yet there they are
1: you never know
0: yeah Well, Emily, this has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to ask you, you know, we've talked about tests. We've talked about these different exoplanetary systems. We've talked about the possibility of finding biosignatures on other worlds. And we've talked about a number of future observatories, techniques, um, and things we can look forward to. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with?
1: Yeah, I just hope that folks are as excited about the ongoing test mission as I am. I know for me, at least every month, we have a new test data drop, and I'm able to plot up hundreds of light curves and look at all sorts of different stars and find new planets and see all sorts of weird things. And it's really exciting to have, you know, new data coming down in a year when everything is so chaotic. Um, There's been a lot of loss of access to telescope time. So... At least for me, I'm really grateful that my work and astronomy as a whole has been able to continue through all of this. And I hope that everyone else is able to be as excited about space as I am in a year that's been not the best.
0: You know, and I, I think those are very wise words. It's important to remember that as a society, we, we have to take a long view of things. You know, science is something that is slow and incremental, and it takes a long time to gain just a little bit of knowledge. But once we've gained it, that knowledge is there for everyone, for all of eternity to come. You know, I'm reminded of uh, when I... Isaac Newton uh, wrote his Principia, right? His Principia Mathematica, where he put forth Newton's laws of gravity. Uh, He did that and he published it in 1687. It took him five years to fully work out all of the details that he kind of knew off the top of his head when Edmund Haley was asking him sort of this idle question about you know, oh, what if this potential orbit, like a comet-like thing would exist? What shape would it make? And Newton just sort of flipped throws out, oh, it would be an ellipse. I worked it out. And Halley was like, oh, what? Wow, what? Um, And Newton went and worked it out and was like, okay, here's my Principia Mathematica. I'm going to detail all of it, mechanics, gravitation, all of it. Uh, Here you go, 1687. It took Halley, it took Edmund Halley 18 years from when Newton published his Principia for Halley to derive when Halley's Comet would return it had come in 1682 he had identified two other appearances of it every 76 years or so and then he went and said okay and it'll come back in 1758 and it did Halley died in 42 it came back in 58 just as Halley predicted but it took him 18 years to work out that prediction Um, science progresses slowly but it progresses even through tough times, even through taxing times. um, It's something that not only we can look forward to, but it's something that helps guide us at every step along the way. And Emily, I wanna thank you for joining us and reminding us of that remarkable fact. And I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone who's contributed to donate at the $5 a month level and above to help make this possible. Thanks go to... Samir Kumar, Jeffrey David Maricini, Chad Marler, Thomas Moore, Tim Graham, Matt Conroe, Chris Shaw, Frank, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Hellbender, Sean Foley, Robert J. Hansen, Pavel Zuzelski, Punitive Expedition, Dominic Turpin, T- Charles Buchanan, John Van Balaguyen, Pierre Franson, Stefan Berneger, Chris Kutas Pete Smoyer, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Mike, Denier, Patrick Dennis, Danny, Brian Terry, Rafael Wojccik, Jose Henrique, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, John Kozura, Flo, Sean Foley, Jerry Wilterding, Ahmed Lee Komsi, Randall Slimak, Laird Whitehill, Joseph Dvorak, Jens Kroger, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Sergey Gordienko, Vlad Pashkovsky, George Church, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Brainwise, Radek Nesbida David Taschioni, Benhead, Glenn McDavid, Tomas All, Nathan Hanna, Tomas Walgren, James Nance, Rich Weigel, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Steve Schaber, Fraser Kane, Mark Bloch, Darren Redfern, Richard Schwartz, Kelly Kudrick, Dana Bridges, Michael Lewis, Tom Van Scotter, Arnoufol Zapeta, Mark Langston, Andrew Jason, Hannah Kahn, Adrian Griffiths, Dick Pills, Paulina Barron, Jason Luttrell, William Blair, Aaron Alan Parikh, Inga Stromke, Rushin Shah, Jeff Reneke, Sam Serzakian, Gabriel Nader, Lalina Menenti, Paul Lester, Chuck Dannen, Adam Robinson, James Bryson Hyatt, Neil Flood, and Philip Francis. Thanks all of you for tuning in and I'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang.